Tomorrow is Ascension Day, which is the 40th day after the, the resurrection when Jesus ascended to heaven. And this is not a holiday that as Protestants and especially as evangelicals that we tend to mark like we do Christmas or, or Easter, but it's, it's very important. And uh, there's certainly nothing wrong with that. And um, we're gonna do, we like to take the time around here to pull out some of these more obscure holidays, at least if you're from the tradition I grew up in, and take the time to examine the doctrine surrounding it. I remember one of our elders when I was growing up, this is before I was even in ministry uh, at the church I grew up in, he said, we really need to work to develop a robust theology of the ascension because it is so important in the text of scripture. And I have endeavored to do a little bit of that over the years as we've gone through these things. And there's nothing surprising in it, but there's a really a lot of great passages that hone in on that doctrine. And tonight we're going to look at one of those. The ascension itself, of course, is when Jesus ascended to heaven, when he was taken up, when he was caught up, like we are going to be caught up one day. Mark 16, verse 19, gives us the most concise description of it. It says, So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, that is the eleven disciples on the Mount of Olives, he was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. That's the ascension. He was risen from the dead. He appeared to them over 40 days. And then on the Mount of Olives, he ascended to heaven. And we tend to think of the story of Jesus as its pinnacle being the resurrection or perhaps looking forward to the return of Jesus. And that's totally appropriate. But there are several passages in the New Testament that hold up the ascension as the grand conclusion to the work that Jesus did on the earth to a degree that we typically don't. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, for example, gives a, a formulaic creed of what the church believed about Jesus, and the last step in it is that he was taken up in glory. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, same thing, gives a concise description of the gospel and ends not with the resurrection, but with the ascension. The only reason I draw that out is to show you that in some of these passages where the apostles are communicating to us the early creeds and the early quotations that the church passed around, a lot of them ended the climax with the ascension, which means it was important to them and it should be important to us as well. It is our reminder that Jesus is alive and still alive. Now we know that he rose from the dead, but it's important to know he did not die again and then have his body taken up to heaven like Moses, for example, but that he is alive and that he will come again. In Acts chapter 1, verse 11, the apostles watching Jesus ascend to heaven had to be shooed away by the angels. Remember this? They came and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? The Lord Jesus will return in the same way as you saw him go. So because he's still alive, there is connected to the ascension a promise that he will come again. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. That doctrine is actually technically called the session of Christ. If you hear about a court or a meeting being in session, it's related to the idea of we are seated. So when Jesus sat down, it's called the ascension, the going up, and the session, the sitting down of Jesus Christ. And it's all rolled into one usually, but it's, it's good to look at those. Jesus Christ has not come for his kingdom yet. He has not been given the kingdom and reigning from Jerusalem. He is waiting for it. He is waiting. Remember the, the psalm says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. These are the days we are living in. 
And the ascension is important in the New Testament. And I've taken a lot of time over the years to lay out the doctrine in an exhaustive format, meaning let's look at the Old Testament anticipation, let's see the fact that Jesus talked about it, let's look at all these New Testament passages and, and draw some conclusions, and you can go look those up. But tonight I want to focus in on one passage that uses the ascension to make a great point about the church and about spiritual gifts. We're in Ephesians, and here Paul reminds us that the ascent of Christ was preceded by the descent of Christ. We we're going to read that he went down into the grave. The old creed, the old Apostles' Creed, which we sang tonight, says we believe that Christ descended into hell and then came up again. And we hear that and we go, wait a minute, did Jesus go to hell? Was he tormented in hell? Well, as we're going to discuss tonight, this is not hell as in the place of eternal torment. This is hell as in the grave, the place where dead people go. Jesus went there, and he went to that place first, and then he rose up out of the grave, and he did not come alone. And Paul, in this passage, portrays Jesus as a victorious champion and conqueror. Pretty cool picture to have of Jesus, isn't it? We think of him, let the children come to me with a lamb on his shoulder, right? Those are all appropriate, don't get me wrong, but let's get the other side of that, too. That Jesus is a warrior, a champion, a fighter, and a victor. And not only that, but when he conquered hell, as we're going to say, he gathered up the spoil, Paul will say, and the Psalms will say. And not only that, he distributed the spoils of that victory. And Paul compares spiritual gifts in Ephesians chapter 4 to the spoils of war. Isn't that pretty cool to think about? That Jesus come in and wins this battle single-handedly and he's got boxes of treasure and things like that and starts distributing them to his people. We didn't do anything to earn them. He did. But in his grace, he gives us the ability to share in that work and in that blessing. And as we continue in our ministry as Christians, we continue that same work of going down into the darkness and bringing people out and allowing Jesus to share with them the spoils of his victory. I almost called the title tonight, Spoiled People. Jesus Christ, our warrior king. That's cool to think about, isn't it? Our warrior king. He marched into the grave and marched back out of the grave, having conquered the grave. And then he ascended to his father. So let's look at this. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 13 tonight. And we'll take one little section at a time here. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Well, look at this one first. We have here a very cool set of Trinitarian verses. You see these an awful lot in the New Testament, where it doesn't come out and say, God is three in one and one in three, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. But it will use verses like this and talk about him in such a way that it totally fits what we know about God. Look at how he says, there is one spirit 
Verse 4, verse 5, there is one Lord. In the New Testament, when we refer to the Lord, we are almost always referring to Christ Jesus. And in verse 6, one God and Father of all. So we have there the Spirit, the Son, and the Father. So this is what you call a Trinitarian formula in the Bible. It's good to call these out when we see them, uh, because if you don't believe in the Trinity, this might seem like an odd passage to you, but since we know that the Lord is triune, that's what we have. And Paul is emphasizing, first, our unity as Christians. And then in verse 7, he shifts gears just a little bit and talks about our individuality as Christians. He's coming off of a call in chapter 4 to love each other, to be patient with each other, to be compassionate with one another. And then in verse 4, he starts to explain why we ought to love each other so much. And the answer is, we all share in this one gospel. We're part of one body. We're filled with the same Holy Spirit. We have the same hope of heaven, same Lord Jesus. We have the same faith and the same story. We're all baptized in the same way. We believe in one God who is our Father. There's all that unity. So therefore, the point in context is love one another. Show compassion to one another. Maybe your parents said to you and your siblings and you're growing up, get along, you guys are brothers. You guys are family, you're gonna figure this out, we're gonna get along. Similar point that Paul is making here. It's good for us to know that there is only one way to salvation. That there is only one way to draw near to the Lord. And Jesus said in John 14, 6, that he is that way. And that no one comes to that one Father except through him, through Jesus Christ. So that can be a severe point that needs to be made, especially in this day when people kind of believe you can believe whatever you want as long as it works for you. We're not really interested in whether it works for you. We're interested in whether it's true. And if it's true, then you can take my head for it and I'll believe it. It might not be my best life, but it's the only life that is to be lived. Now, that's not just a severe point. It's also an encouraging one. It tells you that all around the world, every brother and sister in Christ you meet has the same Lord and was saved the same way as you are, and has a similar testimony, and was also baptized. Isn't it cool that we were all baptized at one point? We all share in communion together. We all pray in Jesus' name. We even sometimes tease about it, how we have these cultural things that only Christians do, and sometimes they're a little bit silly, but that's because we're part of one family. But then in verse 7, Paul moves on from talking about the oneness of us to drawing out the individuality. Look how he says, but each one. Grace was given to each one of us. So one, 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 one. But to each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. This is a very similar verse to what we see in Romans chapter 12. What he means by this is we are part of one body, but we are still individual Christians. And we are all filled with one Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit works in each one of us differently. We've all been given the same grace of God, the same grace in Christ, but we share and distribute that grace differently, individually. And this is very similar to what Paul says in other passages when he talks about the body of Christ, which is always in the context of spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which is the longest section we have on this subject, verse 27 says, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. 
And he goes on to say, just as you have one body, this is your body, yet you also have countless parts of your body. And you need all of them. And you might not think much about certain parts of your body, but if they stop working, all of a sudden it gathers an awful lot of your attention, doesn't it? I remember when we were living in our second apartment, we uh, had to walk down a hill to get the mail, and uh, it was dark outside, and I was in my socks, and I start trotting down the hill, and they have those concrete dividers that you put between, uh, between cars. Some of y'all are, are ahead of me here. But I was running, and just, just one little toe cracked right into the end of that, of that concrete thing, and I was, ah, you know, and I go down and I hobble back with the mail and my sock was all bloody and nasty and I didn't have to go to the hospital or anything. But my point is I had not given my little toe very much thought that day. <laughs> but the minute it started hurting me, that was all I could think about. And I, I was paying attention to it. And that's the point of the spiritual gifts. There are some in the church that have more prominence than others. And that shouldn't bother us. And it shouldn't cause us to look down on one another because we are all members of one another. So because we are all in Christ, we are all one. But like members of a body, we all function differently. Your liver does something different than your tongue. Your hair does something different than your fingers. Your elbows does something different than your heart. But we need all of them. And we don't want any of them taken away from us. It's the same thing. To accomplish the work of the church, the church's job is not just to sit around and be the church, but to get to work and do Christ's works after him. We function like a body, like a well-oiled, decentralized machine where not, everybody doesn't need to know everything that's going on. You just need to know what your job is and perhaps those who are closely related to you. This is seen in the variety of churches that we have in our own community. We're not all doing the same thing. You know, our church, for example, might focus on pro-life ministry and prison ministry and things like that. And somebody else might focus on feeding the homeless and housing people that don't have homes. And that, that's all wonderful. But because we're all the body of Christ, we don't need to say, man, I, I really wish I was more like a gallbladder and, and, you know, less like a kidney. But we're all together. We're all working together to accomplish the same goal. It's the same grace but the grace is differently distributed, referring to your own calling. Paul very often in the Bible will call his apostleship, his role as the apostle to the Gentiles, as the grace given to him. And this is the same thing he says here in verse 7. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The words for gift and grace in the Bible are very close to one another. The word for grace is charis. The word for gift is charisma. <laughs> That's where we get the word charisma. Somebody is gifted. They're charismatic, right? So they're closely related to each other, and Paul uses that pun quite a bit to describe his own ministry. Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, he says, The other apostles recognized the grace that had been given to me. Not talking there about salvation. He's talking about the mission he's been sent on, his spiritual gifting. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, again, he calls it the grace that is given to him. So you also have specific grace given to you to function in the body. Whatever part of the body you happen to be, you have to live it out. And Jesus has given you grace to do it. And we call these things spiritual gifts. And it's our job to go out and take that grace to the world. 
Now that is the state of things. That's what it means to be a spoiled Christian, right? To have received the blessing of what Christ has done and to be sent out. And what Paul is going to do in verse 8 and following, he's going to give you a Bible verse to back up what he just said. And he's also going to explain briefly how we got these gifts. How did we get these spoils in which we now share? How did we come to this present state of things? And he's going to focus, as you might expect, on the ascension of Jesus Christ. So reading verses 8 through 10 now, some of the most exciting verses in the Bible, I think, they're just very fascinating to me. Therefore, so knowing all that, unity but individuality because of Christ's gift, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. And then Paul has a little parenthesis here as he tries to explain that verse. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So Paul quotes this verse as I quite often do. I like to see myself in Paul a little bit. Makes me feel better about myself. Paul quotes a verse that's in line with what he's talking about. And then it reminds him of something else that he thinks is pretty cool. And just kind of drops it in there and then gets back to his main point. I do this quite a bit. I've already done it tonight once or twice. So let's, let's look at this and let's take some time to investigate Paul's explanation of the ascension here. This quote in verse 8 is from Psalm 68, verse 18. You can write that one down. He's explaining how we received such gifts as these that enable us to function as Jesus' body. Now let's take a note here. If you look at the Old Testament, so if you open in your Bible to Psalm 68, verse 18, it will say, He ascended on high, led captivity captive, receiving gifts from men. So rather than saying giving gifts, he received gifts. You'll see this quite often in how the New Testament quotes the Old. There are a few reasons for this. First of all, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. But the New Testament most often quotes from the Greek translation of the Hebrew, something we call the Septuagint. But we translate our English from the Hebrew, so sometimes there can be a difference of phraseology, and it essentially gets the same point across. Sometimes, as we, I think, discussed on Sunday, the writer is just quoting freely, and he's not really attempting to give you a verbatim quotation. What he's trying to do is just give you the sense and remind you that there's an Old Testament passage that talks about it and move on. Something we ourselves do all the time. We say something like, isn't there a verse that says, and we kind of have the gist of it and you give it. New Testament writers do that a lot. This is a little different because it's almost saying the reverse. Because Paul says, the, the Old Testament says he gave gifts to men. But if you go back and read the Old Testament, it says that he was receiving gifts from men. So this is... The, the sport of liberal scholars that want to come in and say the New Testament writers were just making up stuff from the Old Testament. But if you go back and read the Hebrew, it's actually a little ambiguous exactly how to translate that. It does say the word receive or to have or to acquire. And it's talking about tribute in the context. That God is a warrior and he receives tribute from his enemies. But the, the, the preposition that he uses, so two men, 
The, those are very flexible in the Hebrew, and they can mean a couple different things. And so sometimes it's translated, he received gifts among men. So what, what I'm trying to say here is that Paul may be quoting kind of freely from that passage in order to make his point, but it's not a point that is foreign to the context of Psalm 68. Psalm 68 talks about the Lord conquering and delivering Israel from their enemies and then receiving tribute and then distributing those blessings to the people. So if you go back and read the Psalm, it's all in there. So whether Paul had a copy of the, the Hebrew Old Testament that perhaps had, a, had some variation to what we're reading, or whether Paul is sometimes like we do, just trying to get the point across and knowing if you go back and check it, it's all there. He's not saying anything foreign to what the Bible says. He's not changing or contradicting anything, but it's important for us to know that as we read these verses and sometimes we can get tripped up. So he received and then gave gifts to men. They're both there. And you should go back and read Psalm 68, especially you fellas. If you want a real manly picture of God in the Bible, go read Psalm 68. The Lord shatters his enemies. Like, all right, that's a worship song I want to sing on a Sunday morning. Like that song we sing, the old hymn, the Son of God goes forth to war. His blood red banner streams. And, you know, sometimes the, the ladies are like, I don't like this one as much. And the guys are like, yes, all right. That's my God, right? The Lord is a warrior. And so it paints a picture of God delivering Israel, receiving tribute from his defeated enemies, gathering up the spoil, and then, as Paul emphasizes, distributing it to his people. That's what a good king in that time did, is he defeated the enemies, he routed them, and then the people were able to share in the plunder and share in the spoil of the battle. And Paul understands these gifts that he says, he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and gave gifts to men. Paul understands those gifts as spiritual gifts, like we read about in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, like we read about in Romans chapter 12. Have you ever thought of your spiritual gifts as plunder from the battles that Christ won against death and hell? That's pretty rad, isn't it? That Jesus, who won a war in the Spirit, has now given us power in the Spirit? The authority that he won, now receiving tribute, so to speak, from those dominions that he conquered, he now allows us to draw upon the strength of those things? That's a pretty cool image, isn't it? And he's using this in context to explain how we're one, but we're individuals because of the spiritual gifts that Christ gave us. Just like it says in Psalm 68, 18, that he ascended on high and gave gifts. And then he goes, by the way, speaking of ascended, check this out. If he ascended, doesn't that mean he already went down? Because you can't go up if you don't first go down. And Paul starts to make another point here. So you see the ESV has 9 and 10 in parentheses because that's how it functions in context. Verse 11, we'll get right back to what he was talking about, but Paul drops a really cool theological point here. He says, if he ascended, that implies that he first descended. Now this is implying far more than just the incarnation. The fact that Jesus was God, very God, before time, sharing glory with the Father. And then Philippians 2, he emptied himself and became a man. He's not talking about that dissension. What does he say? He descended into the lower regions, into the earth. He's talking about Jesus Christ's burial, his descent into the grave. You ever wondered, what was going on during those three days when Jesus was in the tomb? 
You know, Friday, Jesus was crucified. Sunday morning, you know, he ran right out of that grave, as we sing sometimes. So what happened in the meantime? Did you know that the Bible tells us? That's pretty interesting to think about, isn't it? It's like, okay, Jesus did some stuff while he was dead. And it was epic, heroic, really cool stuff that he did. Jesus, when he died and was buried, Paul says, descended into the lower regions of the earth. When you read your Bible, if you look at the Greek, and it talks about how Jesus was raised from the dead. We say from the dead, and we use the term in English, the dead, metaphorically, to say, yeah, that's, that's the dead. It's where the dead are. But the word in, in Greek there is ek nekron. Ek means out of, right? Nekron, you kind of hear like the word necromancer or necropsy, something related to death. And with that own ending, it's plural. So ek nekron is not from the dead, referring to an abstract concept. It means out from among the dead ones. Isn't that cool? That Jesus was not just down in the spiritual limbo state of being dead. No, he was down with the dead people. This is the place that the older translations describe as hell, but the new translations, I think very rightly, have begun to translate as Sheol in the Old Testament and Hades in the New Testament. Why is that? Reason being, when we think of hell, we immediately think of fire, torment, forever, right? You're, you are separated from God. You're never coming back. You're going to go to hell if you don't believe in Jesus Christ. That is what the Bible describes. He calls it the lake of fire. It's called Gehenna is a word that Jesus uses. He compares it to the ash heap outside of the city. And that's what the book of Revelation describes. Now, because of the confusion and the, the fact that in English, that word has come to mean hell, has come to mean exclusively the final place of torment, it's good for us to know that most times in the Bible when it says hell, if you have an older translation, it's not talking about the final tormentive destination. It's talking about among the dead ones. So Hebrew, they use the term sheol, which means grave. Sometimes the word for pit is translated from the word sheol. And it means the place where dead people go. Hades in the New Testament is the same thing. If you're familiar with Greek mythology, Hades was the god of the underworld. So when you hear the word Hades, you think underworld. When you hear the word Sheol, think underworld. A place where dead souls go, both righteous and unrighteous. They go into, to use that term, the underworld. The Bible uses the terms Sheol and Hades. And that's where Jesus went when he died. Turn with me to Luke chapter 16, because I better prove some of this. So I start comparing Jesus in the Bible to Greek mythology. I, I better have a good, good defense of, of myself. Luke chapter 16, starting at verse 22. Jesus tells a parable. And the theology that we're going to draw from this is almost beside the point that he's trying to make in this passage. He's trying to talk about after you die you know, your righteousness or unrighteousness is going to track you down. But it reveals what was understood by the people in the Bible when they heard the terms Sheol or Hades. So let's read this, starting in verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom. You maybe have heard that before. 
The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off in Hades. You catch that? And Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. They are all in a place called Hades, the underworld, Sheol, the grave, hell if an older translation. This wicked rich man is being tormented, he says, in flame. But he looks up and he sees Abraham and Lazarus. Lazarus was also raised from the dead, so Jesus is kind of explaining where did Lazarus go when this happened, right? When he was dead, he was in this place. And he says, hey, send Lazarus over here to cool my tongue off. I'm, I'm dying, I'm burning. And Abraham says, we can't come. There's a great chasm fixed. So there's a division in the grave between the righteous and the unrighteous. And he says that in those who are righteous, in verse 25, they are comforted. And those who are unrighteous are in anguish. This is the clearest picture in the Bible of what happens to people when they die prior to the cross. Prior to the cross. The wicked were in torment while the righteous were comforted. Do you remember that Saul, when he went to the witch of Endor and he asked her to raise Samuel from the, from the dead to speak to him? And God sent Samuel from the dead. And Samuel asked Saul, it's so funny, like the cranky old prophet is like, why did you call me up from my place of rest? He's like, well, because I need to know what's going on in the battle tomorrow. So Samuel in the grave was at rest. He was being comforted. Like it says that Abraham was gathered to his fathers, right? But then he tells Saul, you will be with me. Now, is he saying, you're also going to come and be comforted? I doubt it. He's just saying, you're going to end up in the same place as me. And depending on how you lived prior to this, you will either be in torment or in comfort. But we need to know this. Before the cross, nobody could go to heaven. Because no atonement had been made for sin yet. So we say, well, did David go to heaven when he died? Not right away. David, I imagine, would have gone to the place where Abraham and the other righteous ones were to be comforted in Sheol, in the grave, Hades, the underworld. Are you catching, me, catching this here, tracking with me? This is why you see David writing psalms that say things like, do not let me go down to Sheol. Now, as Christians, we sometimes will say like Paul, it's better to depart and be with the Lord. We embrace death because we know what's waiting on the other side. But before Messiah, they didn't know. They had no idea what was going to happen. That's why when Solomon says things like, it doesn't matter if you're wicked or righteous, the same things happen to you. They both go down to Sheol. That's not bad theology. He's making a point about death, that we're going to die separated from God because everyone was separated from God. Although it does seem from this passage in Luke that Jesus, the Lord God, 
made a distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous at their death. And we can trust that God in his justice and wisdom is able to do that. But because sin had not yet been atoned for, the grave could have been a place of rest, a place of comfort, but it was still darkness. It was still the pit. It was still a place that was not as good as being alive, which is perhaps why they needed to be comforted. Because they're dead and they're in the same place as the unrighteous, although they were not being treated the same way. So Paul then says here, quoting from, uh, from Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, when Jesus ascended after his descension into that underworld, he led a host of captives. But I like the way the Hebrew puts it. He led captivity captive. Means he took all the captives and led them away as his captives. He led a host out. When Jesus, before he ascended, descended into the grave, he came out with people. He broke in to that divided underworld, told the righteous, you've waited long enough. I've paid for sins. Now let us leave this place and go up to my father's presence together. Because he had paid the price for sin. They were not permitted to come into the Lord's glory because they were still in their sins. They had not been forgiven yet. There was no sacrifice that could atone for them. But when Jesus died and his disciples were weeping, Jesus had work to do. Jesus kicked down the gate of the underworld and said, I'm here. Who's coming with me? I'm not going to make y'all stay here one second longer than you need to because my blood has covered your sins. You are now justified in my name. Let's get out of here. Let's get out of this dark place. Let's get out of this place where there's people being tormented just across this chasm and we'll go up to be with my father. Philippians 1.23 says that Christians who die now to be absent with the body is to be with Christ to be with him. So when we as Christians die today, we don't go to that place of darkness and comfort, but still darkness. We get to go into heaven to be with the Lord. If you are walking in your sins and you've not believed in Christ, you're going to the same place the other ones were. Half of hell is empty, but not all of it. And then in Revelation, it tells us in the last days, they will be resurrected. It says death and hell, Hades, this underworld we're talking about, gave up the dead that were in them and they were all judged and cast into the lake of fire. So they go from temporary torment to eternal torment. Peter gives us more details on this. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 6. This is one of those verses you could kind of skip over if you're reading too fast. But Peter kind of does what Paul does. You want to go, whoa, 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 back up. <laughs> you said what? He says, this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, meaning they were dead, they were judged in their flesh, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So that means that Jesus, can you imagine being in that dark, terrible place? And even if you're comforted at Abraham's side, it's been a long wait. And then all of a sudden, somebody shows up there who's different than everybody else. Shining like the sun, who comes down and he says, preached the gospel. Now don't think he walked them through the four spiritual laws. He's, he announced the good news. 
He told them, you are dead in your sins and this is why you are here. But I have paid the price. And if you will believe on me, I am Messiah. I am the one that you've been waiting for. If you'll put your faith in me, I will lead you out of this place right now. So, so much for the idea that people who died prior to Christ had no chance to be saved. They did have their chance to be saved. And yet there were some, even in the grave, this implies, who rejected him. Now, I would imagine that the Lord in his sovereignty and foreknowledge would have placed both Jews and Gentiles who would believe in him, those whom he had predestined to salvation, with Abraham in the sight of being comforted. But I also know our Lord, and I know that our Lord is sovereign and just and righteous. And I would imagine he proclaimed that same truth to the men that were dead as well. But I don't know. I will just say that the Bible says to, it was appointed a man once to die and then the judgment. This was a one-time thing, but man, if I, if I ever, I don't know if I ever want a glimpse of the, of the grave. You know, I, th I think it was Spurgeon, it might have been uh, Jonathan Edwards who said, I wish I could dangle my pastoral students over hell for one hour <laughs> and then send them out to preach the rest of their lives because they'll never forget it. But man, if I ever could pick one hour to view hell, this is the hour I would pick. When the glorious Jesus crucified, the lamb that was slain busts into this dark place. Sin and Satan held those people captive, but Jesus came in with the keys, man. There, there was no more spiritual way to hold these souls down. He led in the light. That was stop number one when Jesus died. Did you know that there was a second stop that Jesus made? There's a second place he went. This is when it gets really, really cool. Jesus took a victory lap to the demon prison. There's a demon prison in the Bible? Yes. I don't know if we cover that in Sunday school or not, but we ought to. It'll keep their attention for sure. Luke 8.31, when Jesus is casting the demons out of the man that had the legion. Do you remember that? They said, don't send us where? To the abyss. That abyss, don't send us there. Send us to the pigs instead. We'll leave. Don't send us to the abyss. We go to the abyss, the word, I mean, you know what it means. It's like a bottomless pit. Revelation 9 verse 11 talks about an angel during the tribulation who will come with a key and unlock the abyss and turn loose what the Bible describes as these locust-like demons that are going to torment the whole world so bad that people will desire to take their lives and death will flee from them. There is a bottomless pit. There is an abyss. What's it for? Well, it's explained to us in 1 Peter chapter 3. You might want to turn there. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 He says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which, meaning in the spirit. So what he's about to describe happened in the spirit. He went and proclaimed or preached to the spirits in prison. Say, so, ah, see, those are those people in the underworld. Oh, no, no. Keep reading. Because they formerly did not obey. 
When did they not obey? When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to a God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who, ascension verse, has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So it says that Jesus, when he was dead in the flesh, but still alive in the spirit, went and proclaimed or preached, the word is Caruso, to the spirits in prison. Which spirits are you talking about, Peter? When did God imprison spirits? He says, in the days of Noah. Now, what happened in the days of Noah? Do you remember Genesis chapter 6? It says that in those days, the sons of God, which is an Old Testament Hebrew term that describes angels, okay, when the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful, these demons had sexual relations with these women and produced half-demon offspring called Nephilim, which is a Hebrew word that means fallen ones. It says they were giants. They were heroes of old. And the Bible describes this as the most grievous sin, short of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, that the demons ever committed. It also says that it happened later, which is part of the reason every culture has this story of these half-God, half-man, brutal, giant heroes, men like Hercules, men like Merlin, go back and read the stories, and also why God sent Israel to go and wipe out everybody in the Promised Land. Because what they say, they're giants. They're Anakim, which is another word for Nephilim. And what Peter seems to tell us, and we say, well, why doesn't that happen anymore? Because apparently God took these demons and locked them up in a place called the abyss. This is some cool theology. <laughs> that God at some point took these demons that were so wicked, he refused to allow them to tempt and harass the world any longer. And he locked them up in a place that is so terrifying that the legion of demons begged Jesus to go live in pigs and be quiet, then go there. That's the abyss. And it tells us in 1 Peter that Jesus went and proclaimed his victory to these demons who are in prison. So we've already seen the place where the dead people go. But then it says Jesus went to that, that abyss. Now you think of abyss, bottomless pit, darkness, torment, pain. All of a sudden the light shines in and there is the Son of God the one that they were trying to prevent from coming, the one that they were trying to corrupt the bloodline of Adam so that Messiah could never come. They were trying to overthrow the Lord. They were trying to put a stop to his people. And all of those plans have failed. And Jesus shows up and says, you lost. The end is come and your time is short. I'm only going to let you out one more time. And that's only going to be to serve my purposes. You say, would, would Jesus do that? Apparently so. <laughs> He's going to have one of those Kevin Garnett post-game interview moments where he shows up and it's like, I've won. We've defeated you. You've lost. That's the other kind of proclamation that Jesus did. This together, the leading the captives out of Sheol and going and proclaiming to the spirits in the abyss, this collectively is an old-fashioned term, but we ought to bring it back, is called the harrowing of hell. Don't you like that? 
Jesus Christ, the harrower of hell. The one who went down into the grave and into the darkness and into death and robbed it of all of its power and all of its scariness and all of its authority and led the righteous out. And the only ones left are those who are awaiting judgment. Jesus' time in the grave was not idle time. He established freedom and authority even below the earth. Every old mythology story has the hero going down into the underworld. Read the Aeneid, for example. Aeneas, the future founder of Rome, goes down into the underworld. He finds the cave and he climbs in and they have to bribe their way across the river Styx. And he goes in and sees all these people and they're all washing in the river Lethe so that they'll forget their old lives and move on. And they all tell him, Aeneas, one day you're going to be back here. And it's a lesson that they would teach that nobody can beat death. It doesn't matter how great a hero you are, nobody beats death. Well, our Jesus beat death. He went down into the underworld. He didn't sneak in and have to ask for favors and have some sort of magic charm so that nothing can hurt him. He busted the door down like a warrior and marched out liberating people like a conqueror. And they're never going back, and he's never going back. The Bible says having died once, he cannot die again. But he rose, he ascended to the Father. And that's what he did to a glorious welcome in heaven. What do you think that moment was like? Jesus didn't ascend to heaven alone. Where were those souls? Do you wonder? Maybe they were waiting in the air for the Lord. And he ascended up from his 12 disciples up to this heavenly spiritual multitude. And they all go up to the, to the throne room of heaven. Imagine the resounding chorus of angels celebrating that day as all these people are welcomed into glory and Jesus sits down on the throne next to his father. And now, as Paul says, he fills all things. What does that mean? There is nowhere where Jesus has not stamped his authority. There is nowhere where Jesus has not come in and been made king. Above the earth, on the earth, and even now under the earth, Jesus is Lord. He's a warrior. Can you see this image that Paul is drawing out from Psalm 68 and then here? He shares the spoils of that victory with his people. That's you and me. We're spoiled because our king didn't just win and, and take all the glory. He now sends us out to go and spread the, the message and to make more places under his authority. Let me read a piece to you from Psalm 68 here. Another section of that to kind of help you get the gist of what Paul's quoting from. Our God is a God of salvation. And to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. But God will strike the head of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea. The depths of the sea is another picture in the Bible of Sheol. Read the book of Jonah. The depths of the water. It's the same thing as the grave. And in that verse that, or that psalm that Paul's quoting from, ascending on high, there's a promise from the Lord that says, I will bring them back from the grave. That's the ascension of Jesus Christ. So how then do we now function under that royal victory? We keep reading in verse 11. And, so coming you know, back to my point, Paul was saying, he gave the apostles, the prophets, 
the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we're back to the idea of gifts, namely spiritual gifts. That was the whole context here. He says, we are all one, and yet we are individuals, because Christ has given us gifts. As it says in the Old Testament, he gave us gifts. And then Paul goes, hey, by the way, here's a really cool thing about what happened when Jesus was dead. Anyway, back to gifts. The gifts that Christ gave us after and at his ascension. This refers, of course, to the Holy Spirit. Jesus told the disciples, I'm going to send you out to preach the gospel to the whole world, but don't leave. Tarry in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high, for I will send the promise of my Father upon you. That's what happened in Acts chapter 2. The last thing Jesus was telling him about on the day of ascension was the coming of the Holy Spirit. And in 10 days, we have Pentecost when we celebrate the coming of the Spirit. And Paul here gives five examples of spiritual gifts. And this is a unique list because they're all associated with leadership in some way. There are some that, that make a bigger deal out of this than we would, talking about fivefold ministry and that sort of thing. Um, but this is it's a great passage describing leadership and the spiritual anointing in the church. Let's, let's look at this very, very quickly. These five spiritual gifts he describes. Number one, apostles. I'm not going to dive too far into this, but to be an apostle, as you read in the Bible, is to have a broad level of authority in the church that exists beyond just a single congregation, but men like Paul and Barnabas and Silas were called apostles. We, of course, know the 12 apostles, that were Peter and James and John and all those. James, the brother of Jesus, was called an apostle. So it's a broader term than just the 12, as we think of them with a capital A, apostle. There are some who still like to use this term today. I'm not one of them. It's similar to how we, we use the word hell, even though it's got a broader meaning. Nobody thinks that when you hear that word. There are some that we know who function with, you might call, an apostolic kind of authority, where there are broad numbers of churches and people that listen to them and, and regard them with very serious authority. I would say for Calvary Chapel, Pastor Chuck Smith functioned like an apostle, although we don't walk around calling him Apostle Chuck. I think it's a similar kind of anointing, though. Number two, the prophet. What is a prophet? A prophet is somebody who hears the word of the Lord and speaks it to the church. We are specifically, many times in the New Testament, told not to despise or forbid prophecy. This is not talking about new scriptural revelation. This is talking about God's word for the moment. What should we do about this? Something coming up that we need to be aware of. Prophecy. Evangelists. This is an easy one. We know this. Somebody who spreads the gospel and, and main goal is to create conversions. Not so much to stick around and, and raise up disciples, although that's certainly a part of it. Uh, you don't see as much of this today. The traveling evangelist has kind of gotten a bad rap, which is a real shame. There's a, uh, we, you all have met Caleb, who is part of our pastor's group, and he's a traveling evangelist, and we pray for him all the time, because that's a tough job, you know, because you're always traveling and preaching, and it's sometimes hard to get plugged in and make sure you're being taken care of and fed, but it's totally biblical, and it's something that we ought to be praying for, that God will raise up evangelists. And then he says, a shepherds, the word for shepherd there is the same word that we translate pastor. You can hear the word pasture 
like where the sheep live, in the word pastor, right? So, but the word there is shepherd. And so my job as a pastor is to oversee this church, to attend to your needs as the body of Christ, to look to your individual lives, to make disciples. So the, as the evangelist travels and, and makes converts, the, prop, or the pastor's job is to stay and to cultivate the flock. And then the teacher. And of course, the teacher is one who studies and delivers the word. And the New Testament places a very high premium on those who teach the word. And in fact, the pastor in the Bible's primary job is to teach. The apostles refused to be distracted by other things in Acts chapter 6. They said we must attend to the teaching of the word. And in Calvary Chapel as a movement especially, we, we spend a lot of time teaching the word. Less of, I hate splitting it like this, but less preaching, if you know what I mean, and a lot more teaching. That's kind of our emphasis. I'd rather explain this passage to you than just give you a motivational message for the day. Although there are certainly other ways to do it, and I certainly do plenty of preaching in my teaching, I would hope. But those are the five things he gives here. It is important to note that shepherds and teachers are governed in the Greek by the same definite article. Stick with me here. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and then as we have here, the shepherds and teachers. And because they're governed by the same definite article, there are some who believe that it really is talking about the same gift. That rather than having five here, we have four. So shepherd teacher or pastor teacher. There are some who refer to their pastor as their pastor teacher for this reason. So that's one reason why uh, the fivefold gifting thing is, is less uh, strong biblically as, as some would have it be, although I don't really have a big problem with that. It's just not a, not a phrase that I tend to use for that reason. The other list of spiritual gifts in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans chapter 12, 1 Peter chapter 4, none of them are exactly the same. But I think what they are is they are representative of the kinds of spiritual gifts that you can see. For example, the Bible does not talk about a gift of worship leading, but I'm inclined to believe that men like David, men like the sons of Korah, men like the others in the Bible are given a gift to lead the church in song. I believe that. I think it's, it's touchy to go too far beyond what the scripture says, but that's just an example here. What is unique about this passage is the emphasis on authority and on the purpose of the, those gifts. Verse 12, to equip the saints, so we're sticking with this military metaphor, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. You are the saints, by the way, in case you didn't realize that. So you want to start calling yourself Saint Billy Bob? You knock yourself out. <laughs> totally biblical. And that is what the leaders in the church are to do. It is not my job to do all the ministry. It is my job to equip you to do your ministry. Matthew 28, 19, the Great Commission said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Not just don't gather a bunch of people to hear you and watch you. Go train them up to do the same thing. A Christian leader's job is to train up other Christians to do what God has gifted them to do. We've already read we're all part of the body. We all have that grace that's been manifested differently in us. My job is to help this church find out what that is and then to do it with all their heart. That means there's a responsibility upon you as well. These gifts are the grace of God that has been given to you. And that means that when you are doing your gift, you are imparting grace to the person you're serving. 
I've said this before. We talk an awful lot about sacramental theology. Is communion a means of grace? Is baptism a means of grace or is it just a, a symbol? Here's something that is definitely a means of grace. You exercising your spiritual gifts in the church. You doing your work. Because when I teach somebody and you draw closer to Christ, you've been sanctified a little bit. That means the grace of God has touched your life just a little bit more. When you give that word of encouragement, when you clean the church building with the right heart, when you speak in tongues and someone interprets, you are imparting grace. You become a channel of God's grace for somebody's life. And that's a pretty heavy thing, isn't it? We impart grace to one another. For the purpose of unity of faith, knowledge, maturity, the fullness of Christ. All that is basically saying God gave us these gifts, especially the leaders, so that we can all live out these gifts so that we all can grow and be spiritually mature and stable, to look more like Jesus, who is the head of the body. So the spoils of war that Jesus won are those spiritual gifts by which the Holy Spirit leads us to continue and to complete Christ's work. Jesus did not finish everything he wanted done. He said, I'm going to my Father and you will continue the work. You will do the works that I've done and you'll do greater works than what I have done because I'm sending you the Spirit. You're going to continue the work in my same power. And nobody has all of it. There is no one person that is like, this is what God's doing. He is what God's doing. No, no. It's all of us. You all have something to contribute. And that's not just something to be nice to you. That's something to call you to action. We are the ones who must do what Jesus would do if he were here. If you see somebody grieving and you think that person needs somebody to give them a hug and share with them what the scripture says about death. If only Jesus were here. Well, he is if you step up and do what he would do in that moment. If only Jesus was here to give us a strong teaching on what this passage actually means. That's why God raises up teachers. If only Jesus was here to heal the sick. God raises up healers and miracle workers in his church too. So whether you are an evangelist or a helper or a healer or an administrator or a speaker in tongues, we all need what you have because the goal is to maturity, the completeness, the fullness of Christ, which can only come when the leaders of the church equip the members of the church to do what Christ has called them to do, which means if you don't use your spiritual gifts, the rest of us will not be built up as much as Christ would like us to be. I think God is sovereign. Yes, and in his sovereignty, he's given you a job to do. Love to duck the responsibility that God gave us by saying, well, God will just handle that. This is how he's handling that with you and with me. So two passages here to give us a point of application as we leave. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.6, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Timothy had his gift, but he wasn't using it. He let it grow dormant. And he says, you got to get in there and like blow on the fire and get the bellows and get the, the fire stirred up. Some of y'all have been given gifts, but you don't use them. Some of you are apt to teach, but you don't teach. Some of you are amazing evangelists and you don't share. 
Some of you have incredible gifts of encouragement and kindness, but you're so busy on Sunday and Wednesdays, you don't have time to stick around and, and use those gifts. I have met tons of people who have been given the gift of tongues and yet don't use it in the church. They say things like, well, God has given this just between me and him. No, he hasn't. Read 1 Corinthians 14. It is to be used for your edification, but also for the edification of the church. If God has empowered you to be a healer or to work miracles, all things that the Bible says are legitimate. So well, I don't know if I have or not. Well, we don't see very many of them, so that means somebody's holding out on us. Somebody's got to get down on their knees and say, Lord, is it me? Do you want to use me in that way? Maybe you've been called to be an apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, and you're sitting on it because, oh, that was a long time ago and I blew it. Well, maybe you blew it, but you're still here. And God knows that. So maybe you need to get up and get to work. Colossians 4.17, Paul had a specific word for a specific guy in the church. You know, the letters were written to everybody. But at the end, he calls out one guy. Say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. You've been given a ministry from the Lord. Fulfill it. Do all of it. So Christians, what is your ministry? What is your gift? You've got to stir it up so that you can fulfill the ministry. We become like Jesus. We become his hands and his feet as we do the things he would do and go the places he would go would, were he here. And he's given us his spirit to live that out. So Jesus is our ascended hero. From the lowest of humiliations to the highest of all exaltations. He rose. He's the champion who harrowed hell and divided the spoils. And we're now enjoying them together. And your ministry now is to do the same thing. To go into desperate places where people are bound and shine that powerful light of Jesus and lead them out of it. Whether that's leading people to salvation for the first time, giving them instruction in the word so that they know the truth about God, speaking healing into their life, a word of exhortation or prophecy into their life, discipling somebody so that they grow. We all get to imitate Christ as we live out what he's given us to do. And then Christ will gift them. And then they'll be trained up. And then they'll go out and do the same thing. And the process will continue until we are all conformed to his image. So as we rejoice in the ascension today, we remember that Jesus leads the church from one glory to the next. And that means you've got to take part in it. Don't just be a supporter of the church. You are the church. Be a participant. Engage in it. Let's build this thing together. Don't sit back and watch me do it or Steve do it or Zach or Jaron. Or don't, don't do that. You step up and be part of it because Jesus Christ went all the way down to hell and back so that we could live this out together.